you have your copies, we're going to be uh, where we were Wednesday and this morning. And uh, I believe we have some mics that are going to be roaming around as we kind of discussed this beforehand. So as they're getting those mics prepped, it looks like we have Vic and Dave Rogers. So let's start out. We'll um, advance that slide there. And uh, for your convenience, I put the entire text up here for you to read and just pull apart. How many here have good enough eyesight to pull that apart? That's impressive. Kurt, way back there. Heard everyone else? Go. Well, yeah, this young guy over here, yeah. Caleb. Caleb's young. He's got good eyes. I can barely tell Patty's sitting right there. So, so with that text up there, um, as a reminder, we'll boil that down just a little bit. What are some observations, applications, salutations, hesitations? Anything. Any hesitations? Anyone at all? If you have one, just raise your hand. We'll get a mic to you. Anyone at all? Observations, applications. Okay, we got Mark. Thank you, Mark, for breaking that ice. And uh, what do you got, my friend? I know. There are many people that sincerely love the Lord but are not saved. Yeah. Yep. And that was a challenging point that I, I saw, or that, that is in that text. Sincerity does not equal salvation. Sincerity does not equal salvation. Uh, Paul, right over. You know what? I'm going to put my glasses on. I almost called you Christy. All right. There you go. Yeah, I, I appreciate uh, Peter's response. You know, this guy bows down to him and he says, hey, hey, no. Uh, yeah, he's Peter's a leader for sure. Yep. But hey, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. And I, I just really appreciate that. We yeah. probably need more of that. Yep. Amen. Amen. The humility there, especially in light of all the history that goes on between those two. Anyone else? Observations, applications. We have Steve polling over there. As that's going over, anyone going in after Steve polling, jumping into those waters? All right, Steve, go ahead. I, I, maybe you've heard of those stories about the, uh, the, the native in deepest, darkest Africa who has uh, prays to the God that is, and then the next day the missionary shows up. And that's this, this story in the Bible reminded me of that sort of missionary legend that I've heard many times before. And I think that God does sovereignly... Um, Bring the gospel to those who are seeking. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's going to come out of the text here in Cornelius that clearly he is seeking. He is a pros or shy of a proselyte, but you know he's in the synagogue. He's praying. He's giving alms. Um, he has good favor with the Jews. Um, he was good to the nation of Israel. And every any time you see someone seeking God, it's because God has first sought them. Um, and that pre-salvational work. So that's a beautiful picture there. I agree with you, Steve. Anyone else? Observations, applications, anything at all, whether it be cultural, um, anything, any applications, or even just personal observations. Okay. Oh, Patty, we got one right here. So here we come with Vic. It's a question. Oh, good. Is that okay? Oh, good. Yeah. I'll, I'll try. Is the tanner in this the same tanner as with Paul? As with Paul. Didn't Paul stay at a tanner's? That, that was Peter. Oh, it wasn't Paul? 
Correct. Yep, it was Peter. Who did Paul stay with? Uh, lots of people. Um, <laughs> Paul stayed with Judas on Straight Street in Damascus. Sorry, my yeah, mistake. Please. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. He did. He stayed with a lot of people, so that was a very correct answer. Any, anyone, anyone else? Observations, applications, anything at all? Going once. You're going to get out early. Oh, there we go. Tim. I, I love how God prepares Peter for Cornelius yeah. beforehand and how he prepares us in the same way. Yep. Good observation. We'll be pulling on those threads tonight a little bit more as well. Anyone else? Observations? If not, you will be let out early. All right? We are also instituting a new rule at Trinity that there will be no evening services if the UV index exceeds 7. Okay? I'm just joking. It's just so nice to see the sun out there. Um, I see, is it Garrett? I see a silhouette. Yes. Okay. Uh, just the, another reminder to open your mouth. Yeah. That was helpful. Amen. I needed well, that. Yeah. And really, thank you, Barb. Is Barb in here? Yeah, Barb, for that astute observation from the text. I tease you, but you brought it up on Wednesday, so i got to give you credit. No, it was, you know, even I think it's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah, okay. All right. I'm not going to comment on that. She said, even I can get the low-hanging fruit, but you, you nailed it. Anyone else? Observations? Thoughts? Uh, Katie? Yeah, I was just going to add to Garrett, we need to open our mouth. Um, and for me, it was, even though they may seem like they are sincere, we still need to open our mouth. Yeah. And so that was big for me. Amen. Amen. Great observation. Anyone else? Anyone else? Going once. Going twice. All right, let's walk through this together. We're going to be digging a little bit deeper in through the magic of uh, the screen up here. We're going to hit the button and we're going to condense all of that into this right here. And this is where we will concentrate on a condensed version of all 25, 24, 25 verses there. <clears throat> Sorry, um, my throat is giving out on me. And so this, this condensed version has been slaughtered but the pillars of the context are in there for our purposes tonight. So let's get going in on here. It says here, on the next day he got up and went. Now this gives us just kind of a, a quick timetable here, especially if we were to tap the button back there. That's strike two. I'm about to relieve. No, I'm teasing. If um, we did hit the button, that'd be great though. There it is. All right. Gave a quick timetable here. This is four days. I know this because, lo and behold, it says right there. It's been four days since all of this has taken place. And uh, since uh, Cornelius had his vision and Peter now stands in front of him, staying at the Tanner's house, etc. here. Hence, four days ago to this hour. And then it says this. Some of the brethren from Joppa. We touched on this briefly this morning, but just a quick note here in Acts chapter 11, verse 12. It tells us that Peter took six Jewish believers with him, including Peter. That's seven. Now, interesting enough, uh, 
One commentator by the name of William, let's see, I have his name here, Barclay, I believe it is. Yeah, Barclay says seven witnesses were necessary to validate a case in Judaism, which was kind of interesting. We're not talking a judicial witness, but to validate a case in Judaism. So you got seven people there, which is really interesting. You add the three men that Cornelius sent uh, to go get Peter, and that means ten men, a very unique eclectic, very diverse, both culturally and um, in their faith, a very eclectic group of ten men are making a 31-mile journey um, from, from Joppa to Caesarea. So I don't know about you, but it would have been interesting to be a fly on the, on the wall or on the saddle of these men again because they're, they're riding horses and I have declared it. So it would be an interesting journey to listen in on. And it says here, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to God, is welcome to him. Now, we touched on this this morning just a little bit about how sometimes this can be used for some sort of quasi-universalism, that if someone is sincere and they generally believe in God, that that, that is, is good enough. It can also be used out of context here to promote what we would call a works salvation. Fear God and does what is right. A works salvation. Now, that would be a strong argument, I would say biblically, if we took it completely out of its context by itself and set it out an island and studied just that verse. Um, however, all right, if we, if we uh, take a look at here, um, this has nothing to do with um, salvation through fearing God, through ethical morality, because of everything that it is, is in the middle of. In this case, Peter, if this were the case, Peter would not have to unpack the gospel and end with the words, everyone who believes in him, yeah, there it is, he wouldn't have to unpack the whole gospel, and we touched on that this morning. He wouldn't have to end with this powerful statement of um, believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So we don't see here a works-based salvation, especially within the context here. So the question that does write up, it come up is, what exactly does this awkward verse mean when we read the words, the man who fears God and does what is right is welcomed by him? Well, it's important to see that it precedes the message of the gospel. I want you to see it almost as a foreword to what Peter is about to unpack, okay? It's the foreword to what Peter is about to unpack, um, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we saw all those words this morning. This is a statement, and Steve, you kind of touched on this, Steve Poling. This is a statement about how often the condition of man's heart is just prior to salvation. Those who are, if I could use the word, seeking, and then all of a sudden we see that the gospel is brought to them. Now, I'll make sure to, to kind of preface this within our doctrine as well. Um, this is a statement often describing the heart of a man or a woman just prior to salvation. And by the way, it certainly does describe the heart of Cornelius, does it not? You saw all those lines this morning. He was a man who prayed often. He feared God. He gave to the Jewish community. They, they loved and appreciated him. He was a faithful prayer warrior. And on and on and on it goes. So, see, so certainly, in the case of Cornelius, this is someone who feared God and was beginning to do what is right. We see that in his life. 
But it is not, uh, let's see here, Cornelius fears God and is trying to do what is right. But it is not the right, the right works that Peter is talking about. The doing what is right is not works. The doing what is right is the response that Peter is looking for. I know that, so let me just say that. When Peter says does what is right, he's not necessarily talking about works. He's talking about doing the right thing, the right response. Allow me to unpack this. In fact, I'm going to unpack it um, by giving you several different statements by several different theologians that I studied this week and commentators. And you can see that while they all use very different words, and sometimes they just straight up steal from one another, all right? Sometimes I'll have six or seven commentaries, and they'll say the same thing almost word for word. And I wonder, which of these seven are not right with God, okay? But you can see here, while they use different words, they're going to say essentially the same thing. All right. So I'm going to give you these statements and then I'm going to summarize these statements and then push them back into the yellow here. The man who fears God will do what is right and will be welcomed by him. John MacArthur starts out with this one. All right. He says, Peter is simply expressing the reality that the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of a sinner prior to salvation. Steve, you kind of touched on that. By the way, you'll see that same truth in John chapter 16, uh, verse 8. You'll see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Now you may say, hey, I really want those verses. They'll pop up on the screen in just a little bit. So to say it again, he is expressing the reality that the Holy Spirit is at work in the heart of a sinner prior to salvation. Certainly we can see this in the heart of Cornelius before he comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, boxed in in the yellow, believing in him for the forgiveness of sins. Our Longnecker, my favorite name in all theologians, says this, The fear of God in doing right is an indication that God is drawing a person to the point of salvation is an indication of drawing a person to the point of salvation. And by the, by the time Peter gets done sharing the gospel, Cornelius will cross the finish line of faith in salvation. D.L. Bach, you've seen these names. I have some of my favorites. I have five commentaries I read every week without apology. So if you see those names often, it's because they're really trustworthy. D.L. Bach says this, The point is not earned salvation, but a responsiveness to God's leading to do what is right. Again, you see God's work in their life prior to salvation. Then we get to old, rusty Lutheran by the name of R.C. Linsky. R.C. Linsky, who I really enjoy reading, he's now with the Lord, says this, A sinner does good, does right. A sinner does right when he repents of his sins. It is not simply about doing good works. If this honest pagan's convictions had been sufficient, and Cornelius obviously has high moral convictions here, if they were sufficient, why did he seek God in a synagogue? If the synagogue had been sufficient, why is Peter here? To argue morality apart from Jesus bringing salvation is a travesty on Peter's words and will bring tragedy to the soul that advocates it. Now, that's a lot to remember. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take all of their statements about God's working in a sinner's life prior to salvation, and I'm going to summarize it. So if I were to summarize this verse in light of the surrounding context, 
in the most condensed form, it would be like this. And here's where you'll see some of these verses. This is what I I would kind of summarize it. This is about the pre-salvational work the Father does in drawing a lost soul to him. All right? Everyone who is welcomed by God will come to fear him, the yellow, will come to fear him and do what is right. And what is right? To repent and believe in the name of Jesus. So again, this is a foreword to the, to the gospel that Jesus is about to get here. That's why context is very important. This is not some sort of quasi-universalism. It is not some sort of work salvation. It is an introduction to the unpacking of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. So that's a, a wonderful little picture there, and I hope that that is clear as mud for you. And then he says this, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. This is in the blue up there. I believe it's blue. Yes, to preach Jesus, peace through Jesus Christ. This is a significant statement here. Another question comes up, why? You know, I always are asking myself those, I'm, I'm now referring to myself, my pronouns are plural, okay? When I'm studying, I'm always asking ourselves, myself, why? Why is this a significant statement? Why would Peter need, um, well, I'm sorry, why would we need peace through Jesus if we are already sincere, Cornelius, if we are already sincere about the right God? Why do we still need peace? Now, all right, and try to live a moral life. What peace is Peter speaking about here? Here it is. Before salvation, whether we are a moral person, a good person, or an evil person, or a wicked person, okay, because it's not by works which we should boast, regardless of what kind of person we are, there is an equal truth to all people. This truth was true about Saul before he became Paul. It is true about me. It is true about Cornelius. It is true about, about any wicked person or good person. And here it is. Regardless of good or wicked, we are equally separated from God, but it is far more than just a benevolent separation. You know, sometimes you'll hear that the separation was, what's the word I'm looking for where it was equal? It was mutual. You know, when that young man says, yeah, we broke up, it was a mutual understanding. She told me and I agreed. All right. It's not just a benevolent separation between God and man. In fact, truth of, the, truth of the matter is many of us are oblivious to the reality that all mankind is at war with God, at war with God prior to salvation. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 makes this explicitly clear when it says this, for if when we were enemies with God, we were reconciled by God through sincere morality, is that what the verse says? No, no, it says we were enemies with God and we were reconciled to God by the death of his, anyone? His son. Do I have that verse up there? I do not, so I apologize. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Reconciled through Jesus Christ. It is the death of Jesus Christ. You see this baked into what Peter is saying here. It is the death of Jesus Christ that makes it possible for us to be at peace with God. That is what makes it possible not works, all right? And it will end all spiritual hostility with God. Grab that right there because Steve Poling will often say the phrase, I I try not to talk to him, but when I do, 
I say, Peter, I say, Peter, that's your grandson's name. All right. So I'm just speaking to the house of Cornelius here. All right. I say to Steve, how you doing? You give me your stock answer. What better than I deserve, which I think you stole from Dave Ramsey, who stole it from Larry Bouquet, who stole it from, who stole it from, but the truth still stands the same. Better than I deserve. Think about that. To be at peace with God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you know how that should affect our everyday perspective? The practical benefit of this being applied to our hearts and minds is stunningly relevant to not be at war with God. Can you imagine how that puts a bad day into context? If you are having the worst day of your life, generally speaking, But to know that you are at peace with Jesus, your sins are forgiven, salvation is yours, and by the way, it is sealed until the day of redemption. You have purpose in life. You have meaning in life. Everything about our life is no longer about what we are doing or how happy we are while we are doing it, but rather it goes to a higher plane. It's who you are doing for and am I bringing him glory? My happiness in life is not because I'm sweeping a floor or if I'm not sweeping sweeping a floor. It's if I'm sweeping a floor, I'm going to do it for the glory of God and I can find value. I can find peace. I can find calm in the middle of the storm, even if the storm is still raging because I am at peace with God through Jesus Christ. And if you are at peace with him, who is the Lord and judge of all, you can even see those words up there, the judge of all. If we are at peace with the judge of all, I'm going to just say this. We are spiritually wealthy beyond all imagination. Would you agree with that? Certainly it's better than what we deserve. No wonder David wrote in the Old Testament. I love this. Remember in Psalms chapter 23 at the very end, um, and you know that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What's after that? What's that? I'm asking because I seriously just drew a blank. In the presence of my enemy and surely, surely, which is not a lady, all right, but surely what will chase me all the days of my life? goodness and mercy. Grab that thought. I I loved in some of my reading not too long ago, I wanted to bring it up here again. Grab that little nugget of gold we miss all the time. People who do not know Jesus Christ and are at peace with him often spend their lives chasing goodness and mercy. Chasing goodness and mercy. People who have Jesus Christ as their Lord, goodness and mercy chases them all the days of their lives. That is a huge contrast. That is why we are able to say, I can sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, even when my day stinks, because my Lord is bigger than any other issue, and I am at peace with him. Then he says this, you yourselves know these things that took place throughout Judea. Does that come up at all? You yourselves know, where is it up there? Is it up there? Did I miss it? It's under the blue. What happens if we were to touch a key? Ha! There it is. Magic. You yourselves know the things which took place through all of Judea. This is really interesting. Just a historical little nugget here. Caesarea was the seat of the Roman government in all of Judea. It is the seat of the Roman government of all of Judea. Okay? Consequently, Peter can say with all certainty, grab these words, you yourselves know... 
Because you're in Caesarea, and not only is he in Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government in all of Judea, but who is he speaking to? Talk to me, church. A centurion, who, by the way, is very well versed in the grapevine of what's going on in the Roman government. So when he says, you know these things, this isn't some, some general platitude of, come on, you know what we're talking about. This is in many ways, Caesarea, the intellectual headquarters of Rome in Israel. Now, if I could push that a little bit further, anything that happened in the land of Israel, specifically in Judea, they themselves know this. If I could push a little further, this is the central intelligent agency of Judea. And they know very well everything about Jesus. All these reports come in and out of Caesarea. They knew about the works of Jesus. The, they came in, all right, through the intelligence lines. They knew of his death, his resurrection, his miracle, the political headaches that he brought to them. It's the reason Peter didn't have to unpack so many things when he gave the condensed version of the gospel. He says, when he says, all the miracles he did, they poof, okay, they'll come up because they have a whole file on all of these things. They know his message. They know where he went, what he said, what he did, who he did it for. Because this is Caesarea. They know. It's why Peter didn't have to unpack all these things. They already were very much aware of it. So there's a little bit of just a historical teeth to that statement there. And he says this. To judge the living and the dead. To judge the living and the dead. Simply put... Jesus will be to everyone in the world. Now, it's very easy to be very abstract here. I want to use the word very, very much. We can be kind of abstract here. Yes, Jesus is the judge of the world. But more importantly to our study right now, everyone in this room. Everyone in this room. A lot of times we like to throw out theological things to hypothetical straw horses out there. But we have to focus on it in here as well. Here's the point. To everyone in this room, and really everyone in the world, but everyone in this room, Jesus will either be our deliverer or he will be our judge. Jesus will either be our deliverer or he will be our judge. Which one is dependent, all right, on whether or not you learn to fear God and do what is right, which is to give your life to him through believing and repenting in Jesus Christ, because that is the right response to one who fears God, as we see the evidence of him drawing people to salvation. No one cometh unto the Father, and first he's first drawn by the Father. No one seeketh after God. It's a beautiful tapestry of truth there. Now, when we add the words Lord of all, when we add the words Lord of all, just slightly highlighted there, we add it to the context that Peter is giving the gospel to a moral man who worships the right God yet is not saved. One primary application pops from this when we press all of those things together. Lord of all, giving the gospel, moral man, believing in the right God, but not the right door yet through Jesus Christ. One primary application comes, and here it is. We have not proclaimed the gospel fully. We have not proclaimed the gospel fully if we leave out the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. We cannot leave the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives. True salvation does not produce Jesus as a lucky rabbit foot that we wish upon when things get difficult. That's not true salvation. True salvation does not produce a rabbit foot. It it doesn't produce a ticket out of hell. 
It produces a Lord and a treasure. That's what true salvation produces. He is to be the object of our deepest affections. And we are, here it is, we are to lay our lives down. We are to pick up our cross and we are to listen to the voice of our shepherd. Those are very strong statements there. I read a quote not too long ago that stood out to me. And it was a wonderful reminder to me because sometimes I can get a little, I don't know about you, maybe you can relate to this, maybe, maybe you can't. But sometimes I can get a little frustrated, sometimes I can get a little down because, you know, we're all human. I read this quote and it, it was a great reminder. It said this, a person who lays down their life has no right to complain about how it's being used. And I said, how dare you? A person who lays down their life does not have the right to, to complain about how it's being used. Here's a question. Have we laid down our lives before our Lord and said, it's yours. It's yours. Or are we still much like Cornelius right yet, surrounded by many godly things and godly trappings and morality, yet lost? One final application, then we're going to be let out early. Wow, really early. Really early. But the sun is out, and like I said, we have a new procedure. One last final application. And you can use the extra time to talk one another and have redemptive conversations. One final application. We need to stay focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ when we teach here and when we talk out there. We need to stay focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ when we teach in the church and when we... As Barb said, when we open our mouths out there. And here's why I say this. It's easy to get distracted and talk about all these different things that intrigue us, inside and outside the church. We can get distracted by fighting over evolution. Now, I'm a six-day literal creationist, and anyone who disagrees with me are in danger of the flames of hell. All right? Now, you know... I certainly don't mean that because it's not a primary doctrinal point. But what I'm saying is we can get so lost in the weeds fighting for territory that, that, that isn't primarily about the gospel right then and there. We can, get, we can get distracted by subjects such as, let me just give you a little list, even within the church, because I want to talk to us. We can get distracted by evolution, social justice, predestination, uh, election, or some moral or social issue of the day. Or here it is, some of our personal convictions. I was talking to a brother this morning, and I said, you want to know what? My fear is not that Trinity is going to get lost and drift away from sound doctrine. Now, that certainly is a possibility, and we want to be careful of that. But I think there's a far greater danger within Trinity that, that is greater than that of drifting from sound doctrine. And that is the rigidity that we have placed around sound doctrine that we have elevated equal to it and elevate it and say, if you violate the, these boundaries that I've put around protecting sound doctrine, then I'm going to break fellowship with you and I'm going to cause trouble with you. Sometimes the rigidity around sound doctrine will bleed out the bride of Christ quicker than anything else. And we see that in this context here. Boy, I walked a long way away from the stand here. So we can get distracted from social justice, predestination, moral issues, of which are important. I'm not saying we abandon those truths. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ and his gospel must stay forefront and center and in a, 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 what's a priority above all the others. 
We must keep the conversation of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. Here it is. Jesus is the issue. He is the issue. He's the beginning and the end of issues. He is above all other issues. And, and woe be to the church. And I mean that because woe in the word of God means what? Anyone? Death. Death of the church that spends all of its time on issues and never getting to the person, Jesus Christ. So with that all being said, we're going to peel back all of this busyness here and we won't revert to the, the, the very little text. We'll just kind of unpack this text and let the pure text be our message. And we'll allow some of our studies on Wednesday and, and Sunday morning and Sunday night just fall into the cracks. And on the next day, which is the fourth day since all of this had happened, Peter got up and went with them, which he has literally spent 73 verses being stripped of his social, racial, and, and, and national prejudice. And he went with them, ten of them altogether, seven Jews, ten Gentiles, and some of the brethren from Joppa, which is holy Hellenistic area, accompanied him. And he entered and found the loved ones of Cornelius because on a relational level, he loved his family and his friends and he wanted to share the gospel with him. And so theologically, this would prove this is not an anomaly, a one-off that, that could cause them to say that salvation is still primarily for the Jews. And the whole house had assembled. And, and he said, God has shown me that I shall not call any man unholy, unclean. Boy, if I could tell you the last 73 verses of my life. The sheet, the vision, the joppa, the light of the tanner. All right? Hey, by the way, get up off the ground because I am just a man just like you. So I ask you, for what reason have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, well, there it is, four days ago, I was praying because I'm a highly moral man seeking after the right God, which is an indication of the pre-salvational work of our Father that Jesus talked about in the book of John. And, And he said, I was praying before God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. And Peter doing what is so simple, which we find so difficult, and I speak for myself first, opened his mouth. Right, Barb? And he said, God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right um, is welcomed by him. We unpack that. God is working in his life. I preach what? Morality through sincerity. No, I preach peace because we are all once at war and enemies and we are brought to reconciliation through Jesus Christ who, by the way, is Lord of all. He will either be your deliverer or he will be your judge. And you yourselves know, for crying out loud, you live in Caesarea, the Roman seat of, the, of, 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 of Judea for their government. The things that took place throughout all Judea because you're the stinking CIA And he ordered us and he gave the gospel and all that was going on to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God because Cornelius would have been looking for the one as a student of the Old Testament being involved in synagogue and and, uh, Judaism. This is the one that was talked about in the Old Testament scriptures. So let me testify, this is the one who has been appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. 
that through his name and only his name, for there is no other name given under heaven by men by which they are saved, everyone who believes in him, because you need the gospel, moral, sincere man, receives the forgiveness of sin. And then before there was even an altar call, I can just see the complaints coming from the church. Peter, where's your altar call? How dare you? And Peter goes, I didn't even get there. I've had that once or twice in my life when I've been a guest speaker. Where I have been speaking and in the middle of the service, someone just comes down and says, I need Christ. Now just so you're not... (laughs) Just so you know, I'm not bragging. I've also had people come on the aisle and say the exact opposite and say, you are the worst speaker I've ever heard in my life while I was speaking. (laughs) Clearly, they don't know the Lord. All right. Before he even gave an altar call, the Holy Spirit and the Gentile Pentecost happened, fell on those who were listening because they had crossed the threshold of faith. Did you notice it wasn't a sinner's prayer that saved them? Sinner's prayer is a wonderful tool, but tools don't save. Faith, repentance saves. Fell upon those who were listening. They crossed the threshold of faith in Jesus Christ, speaking in tongues and exalting God, same way in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter answered, shall we not baptize these people? And he ordered them, I love that. Peter didn't say, line them up, I'll get it done. No, you, you baptize them. There's a lot of application for me there. Peter's Peter's a leader. I'm the Supreme Chancellor of Trinity, all right? You guys know I joke. You know I joke. I, I hope you know my heart there. Ministry does not begin and end with me. It didn't begin and end with Peter. It should not be a bottleneck. We should be doing the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ together. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they, they asked to spend some time in fellowship for a few days. All of that just falls out. Gracious Heavenly Father, bless your word. You've given us a promise that you will bless your word. So I ask that you bless it to our hearts. I pray that we would not only know more about Christ, but Father, we would love him. Knowledge puffs up. I pray that our hearts would be full of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would love him. And that before we would ever, ever champion how much doctrine we protect, we would champion how much Savior and Lord we love. Start with me. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Enjoy your extra time. Spend some time talking together. But that's all I have. God bless. You're dismissed.